So I said to him, when you go to school, don't draw guns or anything that looks like a gun. You saw what happened when Amjad drew a tennis racket. The fear of Muslim communities reached an all-time high with PTMD, post-traumatic Muslim disorder, as people felt they were becoming more Muslim simply by spending too much time with Muslims or buying goods from Muslims. I love samosas, but one day I, I walked out of my local shop and I swear I said, mashallah, like I don't even know what it means, but I, I mean, I said it. There were reports of people praying on the streets together and supermarkets recorded a fall in customers buying bacon. Feeling the urge to say your salams to talking about harams? Then you could be suffering from PTMD, post-traumatic Muslim disorder. Our new improved formula taken twice a day will keep those Muslim blues away. It goes to work straight away when the first signs of wanting to pray five times a day or not eat from sunrise to sunset, then you need to take anti-Muslim. See results in a 24-hour period and see away those Muslim blues. As the fear of Muslimness increased, like the common cold, a special blue plaque was developed for Muslims to celebrate their British rebirth, called New Wave British. But Scrabble vandals began to steal these and disfigure them, creating new titles such as Shit Brave and Brave Shit. Shit was a common denominator in many of the new versions of the stolen plaques. The question is, why was this allowed to continue for so long and why were the most privileged Muslims not willing to help the most vulnerable Muslims? Perhaps because the government flooded parts of Muslim communities with accolades, dinners with raffles, and a newly created honour from the Queen. Muslims united to halt anger, the mother. The result was a blissfully small group of privileged Muslims and a large number of angry Muslims. Thank you all for attending. Uh, we're lucky enough to have a broad mix of people here from civil servants, academics, journalists, volunteer sectors and a few celebrities. Uh, you've all seen the agenda and uh, if I can simplify in the words of one of my favourite songs from The Sound of Music, how do we solve a problem like Muslim research? <laughs> <laughs> And so I want to pass over to Steve from MUT, Muslims United Together, who have been working very closely with us and with a few of my colleagues in government to help think through some of these thorny issues. Thank you, Chair, uh, and everyone, of course, for being here. Over the past three months, I've managed to gain deep insights into the Muslim. I disguised myself as a halal butcher, uh, a mango seller, and it turns out Pakistani mangoes are the best. <laughs> um, I also spent time as a mosque sitter. You often see a Muslim man just sitting around in mosques, sometimes close to a pillar, so I did that for a while. Uh, I even disguised myself as an online activist called Killing It Khadija, after the Prophet Muhammad's first wife, of course, uh, and managed to get a good following there. Mm, and what was your cause? Well... Saving Muslim women, obviously, but I mainly got followed by white men and white women, which was strange. But the important point is that you still managed to create a following. Yes, exactly. And what were your main findings? Did you discover something that we've all completely missed? Well, as I mentioned, I thought I had pretty much seen most actions by the Muslims. I understood their needs and why they acted in particular ways. But going undercover opened up new insights that I just had not anticipated. My first finding 
and the main one, really, is that there are two types of Muslims. Oh, fuck off. I think I speak for most of us that obviously we have heard certain Muslim groups saying this for some time, but we just thought it was a way of trying to get more funding. But can you explain this more for those of us who are, with all due respect, sceptical about this? OK, sure. Look, I understand and I would probably feel the same if I was in your position. But I spent a lot of my three months confirming this. And what I found is that there are Muslims, but there are also Islamic Muslims. Muslim Muslims are the ones we already know, right? So they pray, they fast, they don't like to shake hands. We know these people. But then there are Islamic Muslims who also have this other thing. Ooh, I know what it is. They're angrier. No, no. They have more hair on their arms. Uh, no, no, no. OK, so, look, let me put it this way. If you were playing musical chairs, the Muslim Muslim one, who we know from before, would politely let you win. They would make a show of competing, but they wouldn't really be. Now, the Islamic Muslims would say, this chair is an extension of a racist game. We're never truly going to allow to be played this game, so we should just destroy the chair. But then why do they even agree to consider the game? Well, because it's the only game they're offered. Well, Let's not invite them to any more games. They've had their chance. No more musical chairs, no more pass the parcel. They don't get a say anymore. I don't care if they are Muslim Muslims, Islamic Muslims, don't mind if I do Muslims, they won't be invited. In fact, we would even let them know they are involved in a game. They won't know whether they are winning or whether they are losing. The line between acceptable and non-acceptable games that Muslims could play became very thin and who was an extremist or not. The Centre for Countering Extremism became known affectionately as the Centre for Pandering Extremism, as it was slow at getting results. Feeling sorry for the Centre, many Muslim organisations began the pretense of acting dangerously so that the Centre could have a reason to exist. Hello, welcome to The Future is Muslim. The podcast that uses a dangerous dose of absurd humour with a side of serious chat to take a closer look at what it means to be Muslim today and in the future. I'm Latifa Akai. And I'm Raheel Mohammed, and this is a Maslaha podcast. We're delighted to once again have Neema Khan Hello. in the studio with us today. <laughs> thank uh, you, thank you. <laughs> Neema is, uh, thank you, Neema. <laughs> Neema is a critic and a regular media commentator, and she's on the board at the Inclusive Mosque Initiative. Hey, Neema. Hello. So, Neema, do you know anyone that suffers from post-traumatic Muslim disorder? <laughs> Send them <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Why traumatic? Is this is this what you guys have picked up from working? I've picked with... up nothing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to I'm trying to imagine with all of this narrative around mm -hmm. Muslims, like people are beginning to feel like, is it catching? Like, can you catch? Can you catch Muslim? Can you catch Muslim? Can you become a Muslim by either walking too close, or eating, or eating? Stage four Muslim. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I thought it was really funny, actually, in the sketch, the identifiers of what it is to be a Muslim. Like, I like the idea of language. Um, and also, uh, this, this, like, we, kn we know what Muslims are because they don't shake hands. We know, like, the, these kind of really, I, I guess I just forget because they're so normalised in our, in my interactions, that there are going to be people who don't want to do that, that I don't think twice about it. But this sketch kind of turned me inside out a little bit because you made made, you, made me think about how I'm being perceived and and I don't 
maybe this is the London bubble as well, but like to think of Muslims as being frightening or being mm. something that people are genuinely avoiding out of fear. I thought like it, it's quite sinister, a bit creepy. Mm. Yeah. And I liked that about it. It also made me think about when I was a kid and what my family, parents, community thought becoming Western was. Mm. Uh, yeah. Give us an example. <laughs> uh, I, I guess um, when I was at high school, so the student body at my high school was mostly black and Asian kids. And there's maybe like 5% of our year group was not black or Asian. Um, and so everybody wore shirokamis to school. Well, my, most, of the, most of the student body wore shirokamis to school and I didn't because like my mom didn't really. I just didn't work it. Yeah, it wasn't in my, it wasn't in my day to day. Um, but it was really seen as like, you think you're white because you don't do this, right? Mm. And so the whole idea of people becoming slowly more and more Muslim, unnoticeably so, I thought was really funny. And um, partly because of the way that we we claim Muslimness mm. as like, we invented algebra or we did whatever thing that's, that is like, we're trying to hammer home, we're already in your society, but at the same time, not wanting to be seen as. Yeah, we're kind oh. of, we're, we're forced to do that kind of like, we invented algebra, it's that humanizing thing, right? It's like, these are, are things you understand. I always I find we it are. such a weird response to be like, you know, we lay claim to these things in your existence because we're also saying, but we're not all the same. And, yeah. you know, one. I see I it very much that we're for, I think that that's, that this is not, it's not like a random choice. I think that it's like that being forced to kind of signpost yourself into like people's daily like lives, vocabulary, references. I, I think, I feel like that has been my experience, but I also grew up somewhere where there was like no Muslims practically. Oh, really? So that might, as in like, I grew up in Ireland in Belfast yeah, yeah. with a very small Muslim community. So most people didn't know any other Muslims. So then you'd be kind of like, you're, you get used to kind of like being like, oh, like Cat Stevens converted. Or like, <laughs> you know, like, I know I actually literally when I was at school, I did an assembly um, on Cat Stevens converting to be used for Islam. And like, because that had been like a massive thing for me in terms of, it actually had been, it sounds a bit sad, but it had been a massive thing for me in my teens being like, oh wow, like this person, like these songs that are so loved by everyone in mm -hmm. e.g. this country that are so kind of like, you know, that this person is a Muslim now that like he's friends with Dolly Parton. So I did this assembly uh -huh. because of that idea of like, you can, you can like relate to Muslims, like there is, whether they it's like algebra care. or Yusuf Islam or Cat Stevens yeah. or coffee, do you know what I mean? Yeah, and have you found yeah. that a useful tactic? <laughs> well, I mean, you, it's not even so much useful or not, but it's like when, when you're forced to yeah. have to do that, because literally, because people don't know anything in a context like that. Yeah, or it's, it's, it's experience of like, and, yeah, and you yeah. mentioned London, and I guess it's experience of any immigrants outside of London in like rural England, yeah. in like rural Ireland and mm. whatever. It's a very different experience to like growing up in like a city, I guess. Yeah, I think you're probably mm. right. I think there is definitely a London bubble and a kind of um, belief that we can have this kind of two-way osmosis of like, you, we can take from your culture and you can take from our culture and it's all nice and pretty and happy. But I... Re I the, the idea of Muslim, what is it called? Post-traumatic Muslim disorder, of having these encounters and being like genuinely afraid of what am I going to take away from this? Mm. Um, being both ludicrous and kind of... Sinister it's and, and real. It's a bit too yeah. real. Yeah. Right now, today, it's a bit too real. Too soon, Rahel. Too soon. <laughs> why did I you mean, that, that's why, I mean, that's kind of why also there's a bit when it says, 
we're going to talk about the Muslim. Yeah, I love that line. I love so that. That like, was really good. I, I wrote that though. Almost like yeah. this kind of big shadowy thing. Like there's one Muslim, is, you know, we're like a monolithic mm-hmm. group of people. Um, but it does point to this kind of large question that comes up in conferences quite a lot where there is this sort of thing of um, can Islam be compatible with the West? Do you know what yeah. I mean? People write mm. articles and books about that. And, and history is all about it's so messed. There are no borders in terms of how knowledge is like shared and you know the way yeah well, i'm going to claim algebra now <laughs> yeah. the way, you know the way algebra ended <laughs> yeah. up over here and you know all the sciences we're responsible for all of the sciences yeah muslims yeah <laughs> no one and knows dishwashers it. and dishwashers as well yeah. we're responsible for inventing that yeah but yeah. i did this this one this did make me laugh a lot this sketch i love the um i really like the the whole musical chair scenario i just think that's you know very strange, but also like it kind of reflects the complete lack of understanding often in some of these policy conversations where it's literally like that line where it's like, well, let's not invite them to any any more games. They've had their chance where it's kind of just like this is where the conversation is at. Like reality is here. The conversation is like way over mm. there at the window, like in in a totally different set of references. I mean, and also that composition of academics, journalists, uh, celebrities is the kind of meetings I've been in. You know, with that, I mean, I'm kind of breaking the fourth wall here now. So, like, these conversations happen constantly. And it's that kind of makeup of people who are there. And they've got, like, two hours. And you might hear from, like, two people who give a speech. And then, right, we're going we're gonna to solve all the problems with Muslims. And we're going to make sure that we can all live mm. happily ever after. And it's, it's, it's a bizarre sort of almost like these kind of, like, parallel lives and kind of conversations happening. And also the fact that actually there's there's been recent examples of like home office funded projects that kind of like appear to be completely benign, but are actually led by this kind of creative kind of communications agency that the home office that sits, I think, within the home office is called Riku, R-I-C-U. But they kind of they almost sort of like create um, like these sort of uh, pretend they're not pretend, but they're kind of like so-called Muslim run organizations and. Like they're showing that same thing, you know, look how, you know, Muslims are, you know, they're champions. They're like, they, you know, they, they're they so creative, they're so intelligent, but it's not work that's coming from the community itself. The, I think the, the everyday Muslim that we're talking about also, um, the perception of the everyday Muslim is really well satirised in this sketch, in the bit where the, the MUT guy talks about how he disguised himself as a Muslim. And he was a butcher and a fruit yeah. seller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it when he sits against the, the mosque. The mosque was my favourite. Yeah. I love that that is... I've got that image in my head. I, I know, could, yeah. that mm. as being like an identifiable <laughs> role for Muslims to play. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that. Um, but the idea that we would then ask those people to make some gesture every time there's some kind of attack, like, can you please be... Mm butchers against terrorism or something just sounds like <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you know what are you that. what bat <laughs> yeah <laughs> against terrorism or man. i don't know mango importers against extremism but yeah. th- this kind of thing of like what do you how what does this look like to you how 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 much and how far are you going to keep moving the goalposts yeah and listen yeah. to at what point what do we need to do for you to trust us? For us, because we're required to trust you yeah. in every aspect of our lives. Um, so then, how do we kind of make it go both ways a little bit? And that's for me why that's why that that musical chair game. That's that it kind of that musical chair is st- 
structural racism mm, okay. <laughs> in my head. That's kind of so basically it, it's it's about you know Muslim Muslims who pl will play along with the rules, will play along you know, and will be like you know, we'll be deferential sometimes, and you know, we'll smile and. Islamic. I love the idea of they're competing, but not really. <laughs> not yeah. really, because like you yeah. know, you know, we don't want to upset you too much. But the Islamic Muslims are angry, and they recognise that these rules are set up to basically make sure that we always lose. And I think for me, this is about you know, I think this is about like how, as a set of communities, we mobilise to understand we can't win if we play by other people's mm. rules, if we play within other people's frameworks, and so we have to destroy musical chair mm -hmm. you know and like not play that game um so yeah so the musical chair is structural racism and the way the um thank you for clarifying <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that yeah does that leave us in a place though where it's like this is because you you guys work in re research and policy you you're in these circles so does that leave you just constantly banging your head against a brick wall and saying everything that is set up here is, is never going to serve us? Or do you see um, light coming through a crack somewhere? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's... I think that what's been difficult is, like, these are really difficult, complex social problems that we're dealing with. And then if you're an organisation that doesn't play by the rules, you come in and you say... So you're trying to deal with that social issue, but then you, you're also basically saying, actually, some of the stuff that's been happening in the past is really bad. Like the reference mm. points that you have for what is good mm. is not actually good. So it's almost like this kind of fighting on two fronts. But I think we're at a point now where <clears throat> if I look around the different partnerships that we have as an organisation, amazing talent and expertise. And I, I, I feel that things are changing. I mean, if an organisation that comes to us and is completely white and says, we're going to solve the problem of the high number of you know, black boys being excluded from school, we're going to question, we're like, where does your expertise come from? Why is it as a white organisation that you think you have the expertise to challenge that? And I think it's up to us to be more kind of confident, I think, in the way that we work and less, I think, less deferential as well. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this is, I think what you're describing, though, is also part of the problem when you say, how do we solve a problem like Muslim research? I mean, part of the problem <laughs> to is... To the sound of Sing it, Neymar. I think part of the thing that we hear from Muslim academics is that they're not for those who want to, they're not permitted to look into their own background and communities because they're perceived to have some kind of bias. Yeah, like, 100%. Yeah. As if yeah. objectivity exists. Yeah, yeah like who's going to listen to you if you if you tell yeah. that story? Mm -hmm. Like who is palatable as well? Who's palatable and who's profitable? Mm. Yeah. I think that's a big element of, of who's it. Who's profitable? Well. Who's profitable? Who has profile? Yeah. Who's going to... Because that was something in, in the in the sketch that MUT guy who, who goes undercover... Um, develops a following and yeah. uh, what, yeah. what's the response from the, the person from the charity or, or maybe the chair of the diversity panel who so says but the important point is you still manage yeah. to create a following yeah. Yeah. yeah and it just doesn't matter who it is because yeah, that yeah. can then be monetized yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that you know those are also questions that are probably going to be increasingly asked of academics now which is what else are you doing what sexy books have you written and yeah. um, and how are you what TV shows have you presented and how mm. is it kind of who is your following? Who are you speaking to if you want to tell this story? And that's why Nadia is so powerful. Mm. Because Nadia has said... My friend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, our we're friend. I'm not saying that to me. First but name yeah. basis, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, fun fact, we went to the same high school. Anyway. Really? Oh. Neymar? She's older than me. She doesn't know who I am. <laughs> <laughs> she might yeah, do Yeah, don't now. ask her. She yeah. might not remember me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> God willing. Yeah. Um, but 
but you know, part of the reason that people are already engaging in what she says, and she has taken the conversation in many different directions. She talks about mental health. She talks about yeah. anxiety. She's got rabbits. She talks about abuse. She's got pet rabbits. Oh, really? Yeah. But so anyway, that, yeah. you know, fun fact. Um, <laughs> But the point is that she has a following, so people are willing to listen to her. And that that's an interesting place to start, is to have to develop your following first. Mm. And for her, it seems really organic. It seems like she went on a cooking show and it was competitive. And Latifah looks so cynical all of a sudden. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm literally not. <laughs> that's what I you think, issues Neymar, with but really. Expressions. <laughs> um, it is, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, it seemed like she developed a really organic following. But I think yeah. what... If we haven't started seeing this already, and I'm sure we have, and you, you guys are probably thinking more examples than me, but the idea of people having to develop a following first and mm-hmm. then being able to say what they want to say, and and maybe yeah. even never getting to the point where they can say what they want to say. I think you can. Dif- I think there are different types of followings. I think there's a kind of like. The, I mean, I guess the obvious one is like a social media following, but mm-hmm. I think there are, there are also, you know, I can I can think of, for instance, I was in Foils the other day, and I picked up three books, by white men who are middle aged. And they had all written something about belonging. And it was just, I thought, you know, I know 15-year-olds that could write far more, far more interesting and nuanced stuff than you have written. But because they have a following, so they're not, they might not necessarily be big on social media, but within um, the kind of world of um, sort of policy or innovation or, you know, it's like because so-and-so has said it, it, it must be true. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I think the clout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah totally. Um, and in diff- and in, in a way, for me, this is partly why we're doing this, why we're doing these sketches. Yeah, because yeah. it's like I don't see those mainstream organisations being able to to do this in a way that's yeah. that's clever yeah. because they can't. That's something we've experienced at Inclusive Mosque. With um, there are lots and lots of media outlets that want to speak to us, um, and it's because we fit. To them, we fit a stereotype of what a quote-unquote good Muslim is. Um, And BBC Asian Network, for whom many Muslims work, have been one of the worst offenders at reducing the story. And we get invited onto their debate shows all the time. And when we refuse, they really act like we're we're the ones in the wrong for refusing. Mm. Can you tell us like a little bit about Inclusive Mosque in terms of like what? Yeah, so so part of... We, our kind of ethos and our origin is very much about renewing what we feel that Prophet Muhammad was starting to do during his lifetime, which was to challenge systems of injustice um, and to put into place new ways of thinking and new ways of valuing each other. And from our perspective, it seems like he did it in a really rights-based way. He, he, He started discussions about the rights of children and the rights of wives and the rights of women. So he was, he was, um, adding a more complex conversation to um, just an assumed system of dominance, Mm -hmm. whether that's racial dominance or gender dominance or whatever. And so what we're trying to do through Inclusive Mosque is to continue that and figure out what does that look like for us now? If, If you're talking about the rights of children within the family, within the school, within society, what can we as a mosque do? What should it look like now, more than a century and a half later? What are we what are we talking about? And so part of the reason that we get invited onto a lot of media shows and stuff is because we're very pro-women, we're LGBT inclusive, we talk about racial injustice, we, we're, we're complicating matters. But, we're also, but what can, that can be seen as is pandering to a quote-unquote Western way of thinking. Mm. 
Um, and that you, you would only think that if you already feel like being a feminist organization or being LGBT inclusive is completely incompatible with whatever you think of as Eastern, mm -hmm. yeah. um, which makes no sense and is yeah. really reductive and historically completely not proven at all. But the reason I bring up Inclusive Mosque and, and our relationship with the media is because BBC Asian Network in their debate shows are, I think, some of the worst defenders. And they, they always yeah. kind of frame what they're doing as, we're just trying to start a conversation. We think this conversation is really important and what you're doing is really important. And we just want to give you the chance to talk about it. But they are dragging us over the coals yeah. in order to provide um, conflict as entertainment. Yeah. Uh, and there are great, you know, a whole mix of people working at BBC Asian Network, but some of them are Muslims, and some of them I really feel like you have a personal responsibility here. You can't chalk this up to your job. If you understand what a reductive narrative is for any community, for the Sikh community who also face Islamophobia, for, for anyone that is your target audience at BBC Asian Network, what are you really providing them? And I feel like they're, they're very much the kind of people who will use the, the reports that we're talking about, etc., and enjoy the reduction the reductionist yeah. narrative because yeah. it serves their purpose. It, yeah. 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 And I guess like in this sketch we see that so much. Like it's like just it's like a little nutshell of what but what, what that reductiveness looks like that we yeah. know is so real. Like it sounds absurd, but it's yeah. literally like underpins so much. Um in terms of like nobody is prepared to believe that Muslims, like you mentioned in this sketch, you say the Muslim, mm. that Muslims can be so nuanced and can be so complex yeah. and can be what people were referred to as contradictory in their identities. It's like sounds really basic. <laughs> <but it laughs> can I ask you a devil's advocate question then? Because oh God, no. <laughs> another one, because we, you know, we're talking about what I mentioned just now and what you're, you're talking about as well to see if it is like this vast, expansive um, pluralist existence that we have mm. had over in many lands through many eras of history with many different philosophies and many different leaders and wars and battles and cultural phenomena that have shaped who we are and what we could be and it's really vast and it's really rich mm. but the three of us sitting here have all talked about white men middle class mm. white people and we kind of you know are we not also lumping lumping them together for our purposes and to be able to talk about not an us versus them exactly, but a kind of um, gatekeepers versus people trying to get through the gates. Are we oversimplifying? Yeah. I don't... I don't <laughs> what do you mean, yeah? Too? Yes, but I think it's okay. Yeah. I mean, I think it's okay because, because on you know, for a lot of people, a lot of, like, you know, especially white middle-class people and privileged white people get to be as complex and as contradictory and as whatever as they want to be. And like to go back to what you know you were saying earlier, Rahel, about like um, when you like about ownership or kind of who gets to kind of have a particular kind of expertise, like the yeah. white men books. Like I saw a tweet yesterday by Sarah Ahmed, and, and she'd written, which is obviously which is something I've heard a lot of people say, but which is for women of color scholars, no matter how much your work is conceptual or historical or empirical, all or all of these combined, you can still be read as just writing about yourself and your own feelings. That's never something that gets that that um, that a white person writing about something will be accused about. You're not being emotional. You're not being personal. Whereas that is something that we'll always hear about when you bring in the complexities that, yes, we're talking about because we experience. Then it suddenly becomes something that can't be seen as valid in terms of like knowledge. Yeah. Um, your knowledge is seen as like not scientific enough, not like proven enough, too emotional, too whatever. Like it's a big thing. But I guess, yeah, you were going to say something. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's just I was listening to... Um, a lecture at LSE um, and it was with 
a guy called Professor Alden Harris, and he's written a book called The Scholar Denied. And it's about W.E.B. Du Bois, who, so the one book that I've read of his is Souls of Black Folk, which was published around 1901. And he like talks about race um, and, you know, what it meant when black people were supposedly free from slavery. But, you know, he makes the argument that he thinks W.E.B. Du Bois was like the first, you know, sociologist. And actually, if that was accepted, like what would that mean for that body of academic work now? But it's not. And he kind of, he describes it as being, you know, what W.E.B. Du Bois was doing was that he wasn't the white man sitting on a train carriage watching from a distance. Mm. You know, what he was doing was he was actually going into communities and he was both being scientific but also qualitative as well. And I think for me, there is that element of like distance. Yeah. I think it's also worth noting that um, white middle class people do this to each other as well. Or, or we, we, we are always in danger of doing this, of saying like this, this especially when, we're, we're, when we are in positions of power, of being able to say, well, this is what it was like for me growing yeah. up. And therefore, you can associate that with all people who speak like me or look like me or behave like me. And it, it happens. Like, I think there's, it's worth recognizing that our awareness of it is what helps us compartmentalize it and not use it as a broad mm. brushstroke. So I'm thinking of, for example, a play I saw quite a few years ago now called Port by Simon Stevens. And it's about Stockport. It's about his experiences and his his understanding of that town. And it's it's about a woman and various stages of her life in this town. But it's called Port because he's trying to say something about communities and place and the the way that how we think of ourselves we can then perpetuate in our adult decisions mm. um but when i, I watched it at national theater and you when you go into the national theater on the south like you're really aware of who the audience is if you are a brown woman wearing hijab you're really aware of the fact that there aren't that many other people in the building who look like you and that they probably paid a lot more for their tickets so it's what was interesting to me is a kind of like anxiety I felt about how am I and all of the rest of these people in this theatre space going to leave with an idea of Stockport and who lives there and what mm. decisions they're making. Because, you know, that was, it was a great piece of art. It was a really interesting play, but it is also a summation of of a time and a place and a people. Um, so it, it happens in society. Yeah. I don't think we can get away from that kind of yeah. Yeah. reductionist labels that we're talking about yeah. or even depictions that we're talking about. But having an awareness of it definitely helps. I think that's potentially where we need to get to. Can I just talk about the kind of just talking about reductive mm-hmm. like definitions? Like what what did you think? Like towards the end, we were like talking about the Centre for uh, Pandering Extremism and Floundering Extremism. Um, <laughs> what did you th- what did you think of? I love the idea of Muslims figuring out what can we do that's low key disruptive that will <laughs> keep white people in jobs trying to identify terrorism um can i can i read you something that's yeah. like, like a report that came out from them so they they sort of said harms caused by extremism and they almost like have like a top five said like, this? so this was the the the, the commission for countering extremism okay. um to harms caused by extremism let's imagine if this top of the pops music running the top five that are most at risk number one everyone number two religious minority communities number three Black Asian and minority ethnic communities. Number four, people countering extremism. Number five, 
women. <laughs> I mean, no, I can't cope. I with don't that. even know <laughs> where to go with <laughs> everyone. Yeah, everyone, and then, and then but someone. Then, yeah, there's all these other people outside of everyone. Yeah. They're like satellites around everyone. <laughs> I suppose we're all there yeah. swimming around. Yeah. It's both reductive and a completely absurd. Completely and absurd. Worrying. I think also what the what the sketch brought up for me was questions of like why and when is this most useful to have um a sense of a counter extremism or something like that that is floundering and we all know it's floundering. Why do we keep it afloat and who is yeah. it useful to? And I remember a seminar I went to in America where they talked about various Muslim charities talked about um, after a terrorist attack, the, the conversation around extremism and what is the threat to Muslims in particular, um, and it's quite low compared to election periods, mm. which is when it really spikes mm. up, okay. where people really find like these kind of discussions, this kind of industry that we've been talking about really kicks into gear around an election period when whipping up hatred and fear becomes really useful for politicians and people seeking public office. Um, that was a big eye-opener for me because I never, I would always have assumed, oh yeah, following a terrorist attack, Muslims are then in danger from people who are trying to retaliate or trying to make some kind of a statement, but it's not during that period, it's during election period. So Rahil, the, um, the podcast is called The Future is Muslim. We obviously saw, we, we heard, we saw the chairs, the musical chairs. Is there any other kind of like future is Muslim that you're imagining? Yeah, I mean, ideally, like in... In my Muslim future, I imagine a time where Muslims are immune to diabetes and they evolve into being 15% key and 15% sugar. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> we are predisposed. Hashtag hopes. Yeah. Also, we've got a bunch of cookies and umbala sweets. In front we of do. Us. We do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> on that note, thank you, Neymar. Thank you for coming in. Thank you so much. This is really fun. It's been great. See you again, maybe in the future. Inshallah. In the future. Um, some future, inshallah. <laughs>